All right, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Acts, chapter number 11. Acts chapter number 11, we also are going to spend a good bit of time in Hebrews chapter number 10. So uh, we're going to move around a little bit this morning, uh, but we're going to begin here in Acts chapter number 11. Uh, and so I would encourage you, if you find those two places, to kind of if you've got something that you can, uh, mark them within your Bible because we will go back and forth from one to the other and some other areas as well. Uh, it'll just kind of help you get there quicker uh, if you want to try to keep up. Uh, in that regard. But we look this morning to Acts chapter number 11 and we'll continue our series this morning on why church? Why is it that God has given us the church? What is his intent and what is our role in it? Um, and so we see this morning uh, we continue with that. In Acts chapter 11 beginning in verse number 19 the Bible says, Now they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen traveled as far as Phoenice and Cyprus and Antioch preaching the word to none but unto the Jews only. And some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, which then, uh, which when they were come to Antioch, spake unto the, to the Grecians, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. Then tidings of these things came to the ears of the church, which was in Jerusalem, and they sent forth Barnabas that he should go as far as Antioch who, when he came and had seen the grace of God, was glad and exhorted them all, and that with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Ghost, and of faith, and much people was added unto the Lord. Then departed Barnabas to Tarsus for to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him unto Antioch. And it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church, and taught much people, and the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. So as we look this morning at the thought, why church? We're going to look specifically at the church as it has been commissioned by Christ. Let's pray. Father, as, again, as we open our, your word this morning, may we open our hearts. Lord, I pray, uh, as always, that you would meet here with us as you promised to do. Lord, we're dependent upon you to speak to our hearts this morning, uh, to communicate the truth of your word. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to uh, lay aside the busyness of life and the clutter uh, of uh, the events of the things that are going on within them, uh, that for this next few minutes we can just lay aside everything and just focus on what you have for us. Lord, I pray that you'd speak to us. If there's anyone here this morning that's never received you as their Savior, Lord, I pray that today they would find you. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be encouraged. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be challenged. In Jesus' name, amen. As we began last week looking at the church as its commission or as it was uh, given by Christ and we, we just dealt really with that idea that the church is a gift from God. Uh, he gave us something that was powerful. He gave us something that was special. He gave it to us for uh, many reasons and purposes. And we are going to look not uh, over this week and one more week after this. at try to, We're not going to try to look at everything that, we, that the church is and uh, that he intended. But we do want to look at some basic things that, uh, that God wants to do in our lives in and through uh, his church. And so we established last week that the church was given by Jesus and that uh, it was a gift of great compassion. He gave us last, he gave us a gift compassionately. Now, uh, we tend to think of compassion simply as looking at someone and feeling sorry for them and uh, maybe helping them a little bit. Uh, but true compassion uh, is something that challenges real problems. 
and so we saw that Jesus in his compassion confronted problems. I don't mean that he confronted them in the way of uh, he, he went and found people and, uh, and scolded them for wrongdoing. That's not what he did. But he looked at people and we looked at several passages last week where uh, they were blind or they were maimed or they, were, uh, they had uh, different types of problems. And uh, he went and because he was compassionate toward them, he was drawn to them and drawn to intervene in their lives. And the reality is, is that real uh, compassion confronts uh, pr real problems, but it also offers real solutions. So we would say this morning that uh, compassion is confronting and solving the problems uh, of our lost condition without Christ. And that's essentially uh, what Jesus did. We have a sin problem and he looked at us and he said this is the problem. This is a problem of sin. This is what sin has done to the earth and to us. And he says, I want to offer you a solution to that problem. And of course, uh, his sacrifice on Calvary's cross to pay for our sins on our behalf uh, was the solution to that problem. Then we looked uh, that the church is a gift of conviction, uh, a place where uh, we are taught the doctrine of God's word and we're taught the essence and the character of who God is. And conviction is uh, kind of a twofold sword here because the teaching uh, and, and confirming work that the Holy Spirit does within our heart, that, uh, that feeling of, uh, yes, this is right, or yeah, I, have, I'm, I feel you know, conviction and guilt about my sin that causes me to want to rectify uh, that relationship with God, uh, that's conviction. But conviction is more than that. Conviction is also uh, deeply held beliefs. You know, but part of the, uh, the, the thing that we, that we have to deal with in our life is that we should have deeply held convictions or beliefs about Bible truths and Bible principles, things that are unshakable and unmovable. Don't confuse a conviction with a standard. A standard is simply, uh, a, a conviction is something that I believe truly and deeply from the Word of God that can never change. A standard is something that I impose upon myself outwardly to help me stay in compliance with my conviction. My convictions can never change, but my standards can change uh, in order to help best serve keeping me in line with the belief of my conviction. And so sometimes in churches we've gotten to the point where we've made, uh, we've made standards the conviction. Uh, and that's just not biblical. And it's not the example that Christ has set forth. We're, when people do that, what they're doing in essence is raising, uh, is they're committing the same sin and the crimes that the Pharisees committed in the New Testament by raising the spoken word to the same level as the written word. In other words, what they had been uh, in the synagogues and in the temple worship and all of those things, what the Pharisees had said, we're making all of these superficial rules to help you not violate God's law over here. Some of them were good. Some of them were bad. Some of them overreached their, uh, their authority. Some of them, uh, you know, were... but. But in my heart and mind, as I look and study the scripture, my convictions never change. And unless somebody shows me or God shows me that I've misunderstood something in scripture, uh, then my biblical belief doesn't change. It's not up for debate. Uh, my, my personal things that I've imposed upon myself to help me stay in line with them is, uh, is very open to debate and, and very uh, open to change throughout the years to best serve uh, their purpose. And so conviction uh, is something that God gave us in the church. He gave us uh, the church and the gift of it was the gift of compassion. It was a gift of conviction. Uh, it also is a gift of correction. 
Uh, and we looked at how God has set it in, in, in there to exhort us and to, uh, to help us stay in line and on track. And God corrects us through the preaching of his word. Uh, he corrects us at times through pastoral care uh, and, and then and by the edifying of brothers and sisters in Christ. And the church helps correct our attitudes and our actions in life. Not uh, that we want to be in an environment or I want to have an environment where, uh, you know, we're a police force walking around trying to keep people in line. That's not our responsibility. That's not our job. That's God's business. Uh, but the reality is, is that through the ministry of the church, God will challenge me whenever I'm not on course. Uh, and he will lovingly bring me back. We also looked at the fact that the church was a gift of commencement. It's a place that when I gave my heart to Christ initially, uh, that he made me a new creature, a new creation in him, to live a new life, to have uh, a new point of view. But also for those of us that believe on him, then we have to understand uh, that we struggle at times in our life and we have sin. And I'm grateful that in Lamentations he tells us uh, that his mercies are new every morning. And so God's mercy uh, is made available to us. And we have an opportunity uh, every morning to start fresh and anew. Uh, but you don't even have to wait for morning. If I uh, sin, had sin in my life or sin during the day, uh, I can make that right with the Lord and seek his forgiveness right then and have mercy and a clean slate from that moment throughout even uh, the rest of the day. But it's a time of commencement and it's in the sense of beginnings. It's a time to begin anew. It's a time to begin uh, serving God, to begin learning his word. Today what we want to look at is that we want to see that, that Jesus not only gave us his church, but that he commissioned that church. Uh, and, and for that, uh, that church has been commissioned to do more than to just uh, fulfill the Great Commission. Though that's the ultimate end is the fulfillment of the Great Commission. But sometimes when we use that word, we hear that word, that's where our mind goes. And we miss the things that are necessary to make us effective at fulfilling the Great Commission. I would say this morning that, uh, and what we want to cover in the message this morning is the, are these thoughts, that the church has been commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ to assemble. Uh, we don't assemble because we don't have anything better to do. God has commissioned us uh, to assemble. And we're going to look and see that we've been commissioned to assemble for worship. That, we, that we've been commissioned to come and assemble for instruction. That we've been commissioned to come and assemble here for service. We are going to look also uh, that we've been commissioned to adopt. Uh, to adopt the, the character traits in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. To allow him to develop in us uh, what we, he wants us to be. We are this morning, all of us, undergoing a transformation. Uh, and we are from the time of our birth. I uh, look around and, uh, you know, look at, uh, you know, I'm trying to find somebody in the service this morning that's like really old. And so this, it was easier in the first service. And so Paul's pointing at Debbie. Leela's pointing at Brother Buck. Uh, Dick's raising his hand, so he volunteered. So Brother Dick, uh, and Brother Dick's about 95. And so, uh, you know, uh, it's, uh, uh, you know, I, what I really need, I guess, better than somebody that's, that's, that's a little bit ad, ad mature advanced in years as someone that's just that's just big and so uh, you know it's somebody that you look at and you just think uh, imagine uh, whenever you hold a brand new baby uh, that that used to be this 
I do that sometimes. I've done that now as we've, uh, when a new grandchild comes in the scene uh, and you hold that brand new baby uh, and you just about can hold, I can just about hold them sometimes in one hand, but the two, uh, and just hold them there and think that once upon a time, that was me. The, you know, 53 years ago, this was that. How did, it's just hard for me to wrap my brain around that. I, I get it. I understand. We watch it all of our lives. Uh, but to realize that this once was that. Uh, and it just shows and demonstrates the transformative process of life. We never stop changing. We, we never stop. Uh, now we can, we can stop changing for the better. And you can argue when that happens physically, you know, whenever you start, you know, whatever age that happens where things start going downhill. Uh, and so I can attest assuredly that there is a, a, a marked difference after 50 uh, than there was before. Uh, but for some, it's earlier than that. But the, the bottom line is, is that there, we're constantly changing. We don't stay the same. We don't, we don't look the same. We become someone different over the years than we once were. Now, at times there are things about us that get very entrenched and those things don't change easily. But no one that's reasonable can deny that throughout our lives we are transforming. And the Christian life is no different in our spirit, in our walk with Christ. What, what happened when he saved our souls is that he set us out as a new creature on a new journey. And that transformation was not something that was merely something that took place at our spiritual birth, but it should continue throughout the rest of our lives on this earth. Uh, and so when we talk about adopting uh, and commissioned to adopt, we are commissioned to be molded into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. We cannot do that if we do not yield ourselves to him. Then we see that we've been commissioned, the church has been commissioned to advance the, to advance the gospel, taking the gospel to the world. And that's more a little more traditionally the way that we think of this term. So what is it that we mean when we talk about the commissioning, uh, the great commission and what the church is commissioned to do? We use that term a lot for the commissioning of a ship or the commissioning of officers in our military forces or uh, the commissioning of uh, different things, uh, maybe a missionary to go to the field. So what is it that we're really saying, and especially in terms of the biblical sense, and it's this. That commission is the act of committing or sending to. So when we say that someone is commissioned, then that person has been sent to, and they have been committed to a specific task. They are, uh, it is the act of entrusting as a charge or a duty. So when Paul says in 1 Thessalonians that we are put in trust of the gospel, then you could say uh, without doing any damage to the biblical intent here uh, that we have been commissioned to carry forth the gospel. The gospel has been entrusted to our care. There are three different places in uh, the New Testament where uh, the, the entrusted is used, either uh, to the church as an entity or to Paul as an individual or to Timothy. Uh, and so we see that to, it's the act of entrusting. It's a charge or a duty. More specifically, you could say that it's a charge, that it's an order given, that it's a mandate with authority that's given. In other words, he hasn't said, I'm giving you this 
responsibility and this command, but you have no authority to enact it. I want you to hold your place there and go to Matthew chapter 28, which is the giving of the Great Commission, but it bears influence on all of these other things that we're talking about as we work our way down to this. Notice the wording in Matthew chapter 28, and we'll look here at beginning at verse number 16. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now notice Jesus' response. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. So what are we talking about here? The word power here comes from a Greek word that means all the right of absolute authority and all of the resources of absolute power. So he's saying that God has given me power. My Father in heaven has given all power, has given all authority unto me. In other words, I have not been, he has not been given a job to do, but then given no ability, no authority, and no power to get it done. And so there's, there are a few things that are as frustrating to me from a professional level as having been in the military, having worked in a, and managed a warehouse in a, in a manufacturing plant, uh, and then worked on a church staff, uh, as to been giving an assignment to do, to perform, but then not giving the ability to make decisions or to recruit the help to get it done. Your hands are tied. You can't function. God did not tie the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ when it comes to the church and the gospel. And Jesus did not tie the hands of the church when it comes to the entrustment of the gospel. All power is given unto me. All the right of absolute authority and all the resources of absolute <clears throat> power. Now notice what he says next. All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore... In other words, what Jesus is saying here, I've been given this power, now I'm giving this power to you. I'm working through you. And sometimes we get in the mindset where we are, we are we're, we're working hard, we're striving hard uh, to do uh, what God has given us to do, but we're doing it in our own power and our own might. And we can't do anything like that that's going to be effective or that's going to please God. The power is His. He builds the church. He adds to the church. He transforms lives. I can't transform your life. I can't add to the church. Not a meaningful way. Uh, I can't... <clears throat> Go out and, uh, and build it, but uh, God does. Ours is to go and to do. His is the power to work with in lives, but our responsibility is to go and to do. What are we to go and to do? Well, we are to uh, go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And so, and then he tells us that he's with us through that process. So God says, here is my command, my commission. This is what I am sending you forth to do. God has given me power, you go and I'll empower you and I'll work through you to transform and to change lives. Uh, and so then we talk about this commissioning, the church has been commissioned and you see all the aspects of what we're to do, teaching them, observing to do what God has commanded us to do, uh, laid out <clears throat> as we move forward here. Now we're going to uh, hold your place in Acts, but go to Hebrews chapter number 10. Hebrews chapter number 10. And we see beginning here in verse number 19, uh, the Bible says, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, 
which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. So what you had in the Old Testament and what you had in the tabernacle and then later the temple worship uh, was in the presence of God there was a veil in the place where the Ark of the Covenant sat. It was referred to as the Holy of Holies. So you had the holy place, you had the Holy of Holies. Uh, and only the priest could enter the holy place and only the high priest once a year could enter the Holy of Holies. You, the common person could not without the aid of the priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, come into what was the symbol of the presence of God. But when Jesus died on the cross, that veil was torn. The priest was no longer needed because we are our own priest and Jesus is the great high priest. I now, in this age, as a child of God, have direct access to my Father. And so we don't have to rely upon anyone to come into the presence of God. And praise be to God for that. But, but yet still, uh, he gives us the church. And it's this new and living way which he has established or consecrated for us through the veil, his flesh, his dying on the cross and resurrection from the grave tore down the veil. It removed the blockade from, uh, between us uh, and God. And so we see uh, as a result as we continue on here in verse 21, And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And again, water in the Bible symbolizes, sometimes it means literally water, but it's symbolic of the word of God. How are we cleansed and purified? It's by the washing of the word of God. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as a man of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as we see the day approaching. So what we're going to see this morning is this. I can never fully become what God wants me to do and I can never fully uh, forward the gospel, spread the gospel as he's commanded us to do if we don't assemble. And we look here, first of all, this morning that we are commissioned to assemble. Uh, it is not something that is a, a good idea. It's not something that's, that is... Uh, and that is optional, God has said, forsake not the assembling of yourself together. And so we consider first this morning about our commission to assemble the edict or the order, the, the mandate that God has given. Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. We are commanded to assemble. Uh, not only are we commanded to assemble, but there is the example of the local New Testament church that is assembled. And so if you're following along with the notes there, you see the edict, the edict, forsaking not the assembly, then the example, the church assembled. So hold your place here. I'm going to bounce back to Acts chapter number two uh, so that we can look and see what is it that the church in the early stages uh, that God is, is establishing, uh, what are they doing there? And in Acts chapter two and verse 42 and following, it says, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers, fellowship, breaking of bread, they're together. They're united. They're assembled. Verse 43, And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that were believed uh, were together, and had all things common, and sold their possessions and goods, and parted them to all men, as every man had need. And they continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and in breaking bread from house to house, 
did eat their meat with gladness and with singleness of heart. You think it's difficult to assemble for church uh, a couple of times on Sunday and in the middle of the week? They're there every day. Every day they're in the temple together. Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. So they're there. They're together. They're laboring together. They're working together. They're worshiping together. In Acts chapter number 11 and verse 26. And when he had found him, Barnabas, finding Saul, and brought him to, he brought him to Antioch and came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. And the disciples were called Christians first. In Antioch. So what do we see here? We see that there is the edict, God's command, fail not to assemble. Then there is uh, the example. What did the early church do? They assembled. They're together. They're supporting that support. They're exhorting one another. Uh, they are laboring together. Uh, in uh, the gospel, they're praying together. So we have the example of the New Testament church. Then thirdly, consider the experience of the church. The church engaged. So we see that here the church is assembled uh, and then uh, the church is engaged. And so this experience uh, of coming together, what is it that they want to experience? In verses 19 through 22, back in Hebrews chapter 10, uh, we see there uh, that having, having therefore brethren boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. To live this new and living way. Uh, and having a high priest which is God, let us draw near. Uh, and so we're to draw near to him. So what do we see here? We see this about engaging uh, in the development uh, or within the, within the church, the experience of the church, the church engaged. First of all, we see that the church uh, is, is engaged in personal relationship with God. We are to be engaged in a personal relationship with our Savior. The church is here to inspire us to come and worship together the feeling that the church is not to be worshipped. The church is our avenue of corporate worship together. Uh, the church is, uh, is not the object here. Uh, the church is simply the assembly place. And the benefits of coming together as the body of Christ. But it's Jesus who is to be worshipped. We come and we have relationships with one another, yes. But we come ultimately to build and to inspire uh, and to engage uh, in, a, in a deeper way with our personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. You should have a personal relationship with your personal Savior that's very transcendent and real. That's what God wants to do in us. And so are we engaged in that personal relationship with God? If I, if I, when I trusted Jesus Christ as my Savior, when I repented of my sins and received Him as my Savior, that was personal to me. He was my personal Savior. He died for my sins. He forgave my sin. He birthed me into His family. I became His child. That's personal. He is my personal Savior. And so in the, the experience of the church engaging, it's bringing people to a place where we're challenged to stay engaged in our personal relationship with Christ. The second thing we see is that we are to be engaged in the development of others. To be engaged in the development of others. And in verses 23 and 24, we see that let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. For he is faithful that promise. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. Not assembling the forsaking of ourselves together as a manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. So what is it that we're to do? We are to be provoking one another to love and good works. Now I'm a good provoker, just not provoking people to love and good works. 
I have a natural talent for, for provoking uh, and instigating trouble. Uh, I, have a, I have kind of a sarcastic uh, mean streak uh, that's playful, but, uh, but doesn't always receive that way where uh, I can, I can uh, like kind of get somebody's motor cranked up and get them agitated uh, and stirred up a little bit and bring sometimes the worst out of them. I'm not saying that because I'm proud of it. I'm just saying that's kind of my, uh, my natural tendency. Uh, that's where God has to work in my life and do a lot of transforming. Uh, most of us are pretty good at people that we're close to about knowing how to push what buttons uh, to get them fired up if we want, if we really want to pick, get something stirred up. But that's not what he's commanded us to do here. The purpose of the church is so that we provoke one another to love and good works. To provoke, to inspire, to engage, to cause someone to want to engage in a process. And so we are given the church so that we are engaged in the development of others in their Christian life. How do we do that? Well, we do that first of all by our own example. Verse 23 in Hebrews chapter 10 again, it says, Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. The Christian life, as Christians, we should be steady in our walk with God. We, yeah, I know, you know a lot of people that in their, uh, in their, emotional, their emotions run uh, wide. Now, th this part's a little easier for me because I'm not a very emotional person. I, I'm, I'm a very passionate person, but I'm not a very emotional person. I don't cry easily. I don't lose control of my temper very easily. Now, I can rage inside at times pretty easily, but for that to come out in a way, uh, usually if I let it out, it's calculated and it's for a purpose. Not that I don't sometimes lose my cool or lose my bearing, as we would say in the military, but for the most part, I'm pretty even-keeled type of a personality. I'm old and I'm boring, and I'm just the way that I am. I just, I'm real steady as she goes. And so, uh, you know, when it, and as a pastor, that's a good thing to be. Uh, there have been times whenever th there's been a lot of turmoil or someone fell or someone had a, a, a real crisis or tragedy and just the calming of the presence of someone that's kind of under control in that situation uh, brings a lot of levity to the situation. That's, that's easy for me. That's just naturally who I am. Other people are not that way. Other people are very volatile. Other people are very, uh, very boisterous. And they're, they're, they're you know, uh, I don't want to say out of control, but some people are. Uh, but uh, some people are just, their nature is they're like really down or they're really up. They're, uh, they're really sad or they're over the top happy. Uh, and it doesn't seem like there's much in between from them. They're either dragging on the bottom or they're flying high. Uh, they're one way or the other. It's one extreme or the other with them. Uh, that uh, is something that in our Christian life we need to be steady. The world around us needs to see Christians that are consistent. Uh, the, those that, uh, that come in and are growing in their faith need to see uh, older seasoned Christians that, uh, that are loving, that are compassionate, that are tender, that are engaging, but that are not uh, spiritually up and down constantly. And so uh, when we look at this and what he's saying is that we engage in the development of others first by our own example. Don't, don't be disingenuous. And we'll see this more when we get into 1 Timothy uh, a little, really deeply tonight. Uh, and so 
when we look at this, that our faith be a faith that's not uh, an unfeigned faith. In other words, that uh, we shouldn't be hypocritical in our life. Uh, we shouldn't be putting on airs. We shouldn't pretend to be something that we're not. Uh, we are, I tell people that visit our church often, uh, what you see is what you get here. You're, you're pretty much, there's not a lot of, uh, there, there's not a lot of time that you have to spend trying to figure out who we are and what we're about. Because honestly, I just don't know how to be any other way. Uh, there are times when I realize that I'd be better, uh, probably we'd be better served if I was a little less transparent about things at times. Uh, but I just don't know, I just don't know how to be any other way than to just be honest and genuine and real. And like it or hate it, uh, that's who we are. And so we, we try to be genuine about that. And the Christian needs to be genuine in their faith. And that's the point in this passage that if I'm going to and you're going to engage in the development of a brother or sister in Christ, they need to know that you're real. You don't have to be perfect. Most reasonable people don't expect perfection. But I think that it's only right and it's only fair that when somebody walks through the doors of any church, that they have the reasonable expectation that the pastor and the staff and the core members of that church make every effort in their best ability to live the message that's preached consistently from the pulpit of that church. And if I'm in such disagreement that I can't do that, then I should find a place that I'm more agreement with to unite. I'm not saying that because I want anybody to leave. We work hard to try to get people to come. But I'm saying this morning that, that it's only reasonable that someone that's new, that's searching, someone that's lost trying to find Christ, uh, that come in, that they should be able to look and observe and see that there is not perfection, but a consistency in not only the message that's preached, but in the lives that are lived. And not just by the pastor and the staff, though that certainly is crucial, but also by the majority of the membership of the church. We're all just works in progress. We're all being transformed and growing in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we're all at times going to have bad days or a bad week or kind of get into, you know, not the best. Uh, it's not always going to be the best version of us. But hey, listen, I'd rather be that than to have just to be surrounded by a bunch of people that are pretending to be the best version of themselves all the time. Be genuine. And we look and we see that we are to be engaged in a personal relationship with God, engaged in the development of others, and that starts by being an example. Not only that, but we do it by exhortation. Exhortation means that uh, we encourage one another. Hey, man, that's great. You're here today. I'm proud of you. That's a good job. But it also means that we, uh, at times, uh, may need to say, you know what, if you continue down this path, this is going to be dangerous for you. And I can't have, no pastor can have, that close of a relationship with every member of the church, that every member of the church would receive that conversation. That's a harder conversation. Hey, Frankie, you did such and such, and if you continue down this road, then this is where it's going to lead. You're younger, you can't see that. You haven't been called younger in a long time, have you? Uh, you're younger and you can't see that, but I've been around this barn. I've been down that road. I know where that's going to take you. If we have no relationship, that's not received well. But if I've loved you and if we've uh, had fellowship together and if we've prayed together and if we've engaged in service together and if we've engaged in worship together, then that's not somebody's riding my case that someone's genuinely loves me and is concerned for me. That's exhortation. 
that's coming when someone's doing well and, uh, and, and encouraging them and, and, and cheering them on and when someone's struggling or when someone's uh, going down a dangerous path where we pull them in and rein them in and sound the warning, that's exhortation. That's what the church is to do. That's why it's so important that we understand that this command is to the church, not to the pastor of it. That as a member of the church in this regard, I'm in the same boat as everyone else. But when we look and we see that we are not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as a manner of some is, but exhorting one another. Working together. That's why it's important that the church uh, people have connections and, and relationships so that, uh, you know, I maybe don't have that relationship uh, with Jeremy, but Brother Bartlett does. And so if I went to Jeremy and tried to deal with an issue in his life that was destructive, he's rebuffing that and rejecting it. But because Brother Bartlett has that close personal relationship, it's received as a message from a friend and someone that is caring and compassionate and uh, has love for him. And so it's the church coming together. D.L. Moody said this, he said that church attendance is as vital to, the, to a disciple as a transfusion of rich, healthy blood is to a sick man. We need one another. We need the camaraderie. We need uh, the unity and the binding of the church. So we see this morning that the church is commissioned to assemble. Secondly, consider that the church is commissioned to adopt a new life. We are commissioned to adopt a new life. Hebrews chapter 10 and verses 19 and 20 again. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way that he has consecrated for us. It's the new and living way. It's God's way. It's not man's way. It's not the world's way. It's not the culture's way, society's way. It's the way of God. And we are commissioned to adopt that new life. I know of no better passage in the scripture, even though it's so familiar that many times when we hear the reference, uh, we just tune it out and because we already know what it says. But Romans chapter 12 and verses 1 and 2 epitomizes what he's saying. And that's why, and it's so important to what God's trying to get across that Paul comes to it and says, listen, I beseech you, I beg you. Paul literally is saying to them, I'm begging you by the mercies of God that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. What's he saying here is he's saying, listen, yield yourself to God, offer yourself a sacrifice to God, and let God's Holy Spirit transform who you are from the inside out. That's why I say that when God gets a hold of our heart, it should change the way that we think. It should change attitudes. It should change, it should change our values. It should change uh, everything about us and over the course of time. But uh, by exhortation, then we see we're commissioned adopting that new life. It is to be this, personally surrendered to a personal Savior. I am personally surrendered to my personal Savior. Jesus said, I love you. I've come to aid you in your problem. I'm offering you a solution, but you're partaking of that full solution, not just salvation, but a life that becomes productive and glorifies God requires that you offer your body a living sacrifice. Jesus says, I offered my body in sacrifice and I shed my blood and I died for you on the cross. I'm not asking you to do that. I'm asking you to give me yourself as a living sacrifice. I gave my life for you. Give your life for me. I gave your life 
to restore you, to resurrect you, to birth you into my family. Give your life to me. And so we're commissioned to adopt this new life. It's a command. It's not optional. By the transforming of the mind, it's a gradual process. He doesn't just flip the switch and all of a sudden uh, I, everything is, uh, is fully understood and implemented in my life. It's a, it's a process of transformation like a babe who is born and develops and grows over the years. We as Christians should be developing and growing uh, over the years. And so we must be personally surrendered to our personal Savior. Uh, and that means that we should become easily identifiable as a Christian. And again in Acts chapter 11 and verse 26 in our text verse, and they were called Christians first in Antioch. They knew what their values were. They knew what they stood for. They knew that they were, they were Christians. They were little Christs. They were given the name not favorably, but derogatorily. But they wore it proudly. That we are Christian. Everybody that knows you should know that you're a Christian. And I don't mean that they know that you're a Christian because uh, you're, you've done something to like call attention to it or, uh, or we get weird. I, I'm saying that our personal, our person, our presentation, our demeanor, our countenance, the love of Christ, uh, our genuine compassion, uh, the fact that we just kind of don't line up with what the values in the system and the, and the culture is uh, ought to speak to people to say, hey, you know what? There's a peace about you that I maybe don't understand. There's a, a joy about you that I don't understand. There's a love about you that I don't understand. You have something that I, I don't know what it is, but I think I want it. It's Jesus. We come to the place where we understand that we should be easily identified as a Christian. Henry Ward Beecher said that the church is not a gallery for the exhibition of, uh, of eminent Christians, but a school for the education of imperfect ones. We are to be learning and growing. Thirdly, this morning we see not only is the church commissioned to assemble, and not only is the church commissioned to adopt, but we are commissioned to advance the gospel. We have been given and entrusted with his gospel. And in Acts chapter number 1 and verse number 8, we see uh, clearly, but ye shall receive power. Now remember in Matthew chapter 8, or chapter 28, and God gave Jesus all power. Remember that? All power is given unto me. Now notice in Acts chapter 1, but ye shall receive power. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and into the uttermost parts of the earth. We are to be advancing the gospel. In Acts chapter uh, number 17, uh, in the first few verses there, Acts chapter 17, uh, it says this, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis uh, and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, and there was a synagogue of the Jews, and Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus whom I preached unto you is Christ. And some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas, and of the devout Greeks, a multitude of the chief women, not a few. And the Jews, which believed not, moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sword, and gathered a company, and set all the city in an uproar, and assaulted the house of Jason, and sought uh, to bring them unto the people. And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren and rulers of the city, crying, These that have turned the world upside down come hither also. 
That it is our duty as the church, our responsibility to be turning the world upside down with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We this morning have to realize that we are commissioned to advance the gospel and that begins with realizing that we're commissioned to be credible witnesses. That our witness should be credible. That when people hear the truth of the word of God, that it's believable. In Acts chapter 8 and verses 9 through 12, we see, But there was a certain man called Simon, which before time in the same city used sorcery and bewitched the people of Samaria, given out that himself was some great one. To whom, all, whom they all gave heed, from the least to the greatest, this man is the, is the great power of God. And to him that had regard because of a long time had bewitched them with sorceries, but then, but when they believed Philip was, but when they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. So what do we see here? We see that there are people that are under uh, the uh, the leadership and the authority of this Simon a sorcerer, and he's lifting up himself. And he's manipulating, he's controlling the people. But, but Philip comes and preaches the gospel. And the gospel is credible. Philip is credible. Philip's witness is more believable than this man who is new to them, than this man that they've been listening to for a great while, for many years. Listen, when we take the gospel, we're confronting what people have believed a lifetime. And we're sharing with them Jesus Christ. Are we credible? Are we credible enough to bring them to a place where they're willing to cast aside what they believe for a lifetime to believe the truth? It's not the truth because we state it. It's the truth because God said it. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man cometh unto the Father but by me. We are commissioned to be credible witnesses. We are to be worthy of the gospel that we represent. We don't want to be an unworthy example not only that, but we see that we're commissioned to be competent witnesses. And by that I mean we should be educated in, in uh, Acts chapter number 11, again in verse uh, number 26. Then uh, Paul finds, or Barnabas finds Saul, Paul the apostle, and brings him to Antioch. And it says, and it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. What I'm saying here is that they were, they were competent witnesses. They were educated and what they were doing. They, they knew the truth of the gospel. They knew how to present the gospel. They knew how to effectively communicate the gospel to the people that they were sharing their witness to. They didn't just go in and, uh, and stir things up or spew things out in a way that, they were not that it was not received. Paul oftentimes changed his tactics and his verbiage uh, to the people that were there uh, so that they would receive the message. There's a passage, and we've not covered it yet in our, in our Wednesday night study through the book of Acts, but, uh, but there's a place where he comes and they've built a, a, an idol to the unknown God. And he comes in, and when you first read it at casual reading, it sounds like he's, he's rebuking them. But if you really read it close and understand what was going on, he was commending them. Not for false worship, but for the fact that they were seeking truth. He didn't bend the truth, but he found a way to confront their sin and to present it in a way that they would receive the word. And so he tailored, made his presentation to them. He was well educated. We're commissioned to be credible witnesses. We are commissioned to be competent witnesses. And we are commissioned to be committed witnesses. 
determined. We should be determined that we're going to do what God has given us and what God has commanded us to do. In Philippians chapter number 3, and this is again a well-known passage of scripture, but Paul to this point about commitment says uh, in chapter 3 and verse 13, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do. Forgetting those things which are behind. I press toward the mark. Are we pressing toward the mark? The mark is living the life that God has called us to live. Living the life that God has called us to live requires our assembly. Living the life requires us adopting the character traits of Christ. And it requires us committing to advancement of the gospel. I would say this morning that it is impossible for us to completely fulfill the commission of Christ if we're not assembled. And it is impossible for us to effectively communicate the Great Commission if we are not adopted, adopting the image and the person of Christ in our lives. Letting him transform us, letting him develop us, letting him challenge us so that we commit to the furtherance of the gospel. Listen, we could, I could gather up a bunch of people. I could even get a bunch of people together if I couldn't get anybody in the church to cooperate uh, that, uh, that are just uh, wicked heathen people that want some money and give them some money to go out and pass out some flyers or some literature or hang door hangers on the door and invite people. But they don't have no credibility because they don't live what the message is. But when God's people, with the right spirit, come together, worshiping, encouraging one another, caring for one another, taking, working together the gospel to the masses, then God is glorified. Does that guarantee that we're going to turn into some mega church? Not, not hardly. It means that he'll build the church as he sees fit. Reaching a numerical goal is not our priority or our goal. That's not what we're commissioned to do. We're, we're commissioned to go and to teach. It's his work that changes lives. I don't want to be in the way of him effectively doing his work, Brother Buck. I, I don't want my life to not be credible. I, I don't want to just decide that I'm not going to do things God's way. I, I want to do things my way. I want to say, this is what God has said. And I'm going to yield and surrender myself to it. And I'm going to do my part. Not because I have to, but because I love him and I want to express that love. Amen. And when I do it, I can rest assured that God will do his part. Are we willing this morning to understand that he wants to work through us? He wants to work through your life. He wants to use you to make a difference in the lives of those around you. But he can't do it. If we, if we excuse and want to do things our way. And we look and we say, well, pastor, I just, you know, I come and I, I just don't get a lot out of this or I don't get a lot out of that. Listen, number one, you only get out of something what you put into it. But number two, did you miss this morning the good chunk of the message that says that we're to be exhorting one another? Maybe in that season when you feel as if you're not getting anything from the pulpit. 
or you're not getting anything from your brothers and sisters in Christ, that maybe that it's time for you to be giving to them. There are seasons when we need to be exhorted and there are seasons when we need to be exhorting. There are times when it's not about what am I getting. There are times if this is what God has done in my life, I would like to share that with you. The church assembled. We're commissioned. Commissioned to assemble. Commissioned to adopt the image of Christ. And commissioned to advance his gospel.